0: Peter, Jeremy, Sean, back on the saddle again, again. Season 5, 2023.
1: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a (laughs) podcast about inexpensive... Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, lead grill cook at Jimmy Mac's Stone Soul Picnic, America's premier catering and DJ service. I love that you're on like years of coming up with good food
0: titles related to the artist.
2: Oh, is that what he's doing? I thought he was just like an entrepreneur extraordinaire
0: well that too i guess yeah i'm a little bit everything well i'm just one thing i'm co-host jeremy and being a podcaster i figured i should continue podcasting both for this podcast i'm not gonna flip a coin sean calm down
2: oh, coin boy ruggles jeremy coinboy ruggles is gone now <laughs>
0: Yeah, that was just uh, season four and, uh, you know, mental break, we'll call it.
2: Yeah, just something to do with your time as you're trying to get through the end of the season.
0: Yeah, but with my new renewed energy and time, I'm going to start a new mystery podcast. Ooh! I'm going to be doing a little sleuthing to find out eli's 13
1: confessions that's have you have you found out any so far or are you at zero of 13 right now currently at zero so i'm just trying to think of a good name for the podcast so
0: far
2: uncovering eli's 13 confessions Ooh, yeah
0: yeah that could yeah
2: that might work i'll let you have it thank you i am co-host peter cook and i thought at the top of Season 5 here, I'd give our listeners a little peek behind the curtain. I want you to know that I'd buy that for a dollar. We meet on Sundays to record these.
1: Every like, single time? It's always been Sunday?
2: Not always, but tra- generally, we, and, we met on a Sunday to record these.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Mm.
2: I had to phrase it so that you would get where yeah, I was I, going. Yeah. I was
1: reaching we Podcasted up and, on a Sunday yeah
2: well here we are season five fellas did you have a relaxing season break there
0: no i drove to philadelphia and me and sean and another friend went and saw bruce springsteen
2: well that sounds like podcast related work that you did
1: (laughs) yeah we were out there doing some deep field research
2: how was it how was the boss
1: the boss was pretty good nils lofgren was great east street band was shredding it was a good time
2: i heard that then he canceled all of his concerts right after you saw him
1: yeah, yeah. we hope the boss is in good health but it, i don't know it seems like it's not doing so good maybe that was the last concert hopefully not though
2: yeah hopefully not yeah well we're back here to because there's just if we do take too long a break We're never going to cover all these inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered out out there in the world.
0: (laughs) They just keep coming at us. True. Kind of like all the commenters being like, these aren't actually a dollar.
2: (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Yeah, we
0: get it, okay? It's just a name. It's from RoboCop. Look it up.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good segue into something that we were going to mention at the top of this season. We've been doing this podcast since... 2019 we're in season five and when we started we said that we were going to uh, try to feature records that had a median value on discogs of five dollars or less of course the last five ten years or a little more record prices just continue to rise and it's getting tougher and tougher to you know meet that criteria every week. So here starting here in season 5, we have agreed that we are going to we're going to push
0: the boundary a little.
2: Push the boundary just a little bit and we're going to say median value on discogs of less than $10. Yeah. Which has kind of already been <laughs> sort of how we've been doing it anyways. Oh, it's 683 median. I was, was going
1: to say that boundary has been <laughs> that boundary has been pushed since season 1. I mean, we just are officially stating it now, but <laughs>
2: Yeah. You know, and you know, as much as I think the the name of our podcast, I'd buy that for a dollar has maybe put a little too much emphasis on the price when we also are going for ones that are commonly found most of the time and are underappreciated. And it's about finding those records that haven't been hyped. That's what we're really here to
1: do. Correct. And we're still going to go for the cheap ones get off our backs sometimes the records we talk about will be very easy to find sometimes they'll be kind of a, a medium difficulty to find but that's the joy of record collecting sometimes you have the ones that are easy and sometimes you have stuff on your list for years that you're out there digging for but hopefully any record we talk about you should be able to find for fairly inexpensive if you keep looking
2: and of course some of them get the eye by that bump after we feature them and are now fifteen, twenty dollar records.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it does happen.
2: I, I'm seeing that self titled Roach is commonly going for ten or fifteen now. I think we I think we push that one up a little bit.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, we can take all of the credit on that one.
0: <laughs> I've been single handedly just raving about that record to any person who will listen to me rave for, for over a year now, so yeah. That's what you get. That's what you get. I I got my copy. I'm good. Y'all can pay whatever you want.
2: Well, before we get into the artists that we came to talk about today, just got a little bit of housekeeping to do, and go to start with a for the record where we correct misinformation stated on previous episodes. We set the record straight, and that would be from the tail end of season four, our Leon Redbone episode. Uh, We were discussing the song "Haunted House" from his album on the track. And the authorship of that song, we were saying, is this a Leon Redbone song? Is this a traditional? Well, it was neither. That was by Lonnie Johnson. For the record. So the people know.
0: It's been driving you nuts this whole break, hasn't it?
2: (laughs) Yes, that's all I've been thinking about. (laughs) Needing to state that fact.
1: All I was thinking about was whether Jeremy was going to flip a coin when we came back or not. (laughs) (laughs) I did wonder. (laughs) Well... Yeah. So let's get into the record we
2: came to talk about today. And I'll just say real quickly, of course, this was determined. The first four features of this season were determined by the people, the fans of I'd buy that for a dollar on our I'd buy that for a dollar Facebook group. We put up a list of, I believe it was a 15 artists that we've mentioned time and time again that we need to cover on the program and have not yet. And what you're going to be hearing on this episode and the next three following it are what you, the people determined to be the winners. The the one, although I think it'd be a great goal if we could cover all 15 of the artists we mentioned in the, within the next season or two. (laughs) Oh,
0: there's one that didn't, get hardly any votes and i'm definitely doing i don't even care
2: yeah so if you (laughs) want to see the 15 that were on that list it's too late to vote now but you can see that if you go to our i'd buy that for a dollar facebook group just search i'd buy that for a dollar in groups join get in on the fun of sharing your finds in the bins out there in the group regularly we have some nice participation over there but we're starting off with an artist who we First mentioned on the podcast, on our first episode. Oh, wow. Do, do either, either of you remember how Laura Nero came up on the Jimmy Spirits episode?
1: Um, I do not, unfortunately. No, yeah.
2: They had been roommates at one point.
1: Oh. oh.
2: So here we are, episode 199, finally getting around to Laura Nero <laughs> proper.
1: Does that mean I need to add Jimmy's Ferris to my recommended album section real quick? Oh I, my God. I figured he
2: was there already. <laughs> <laughs> and the album that we have chosen is her 1971 release with LaBelle. It's uh, Laura Nero and LaBelle going to take a miracle, which came out in November of 1971. It was the fifth album from Laura Nero singer songwriter and it came just two months after the debut album by vocal trio Belle. although they had released much material prior to that. that we'll, we'll get into that when we get there. Let's just get started off by playing The Bells, Side A, track two.
3: If you leave me I
0: I was quite surprised you picked this album, Peter, namely because in my mind, Laura was like a singer-songwriter kind of person who wrote some big songs, and this whole album features zero of her songs.
2: Yeah, and that definitely did not escape me. (laughs) And I, I definitely... Had some moments of second-guessing that, but I just kept coming back to this one because it's such an amazing-sounding record.
0: Yeah, when I listened to it in preparation for this, I don't think I've ever heard this album before recently, and I was taken aback at how it's just soul music, (laughs) and that was the other thing in my mind is Laura was like a folk musician, but then when I, I started like listening back to her other albums and it became clear to me that no she's kind of a soul singer with folk influences and not really the other way around
2: yeah when sean and i were working together at a record store i remember we were doing the project that we frequently referenced going through the bins just trying to learn more about all the artists that sat and no one purchased and of course there were laura nero records in there and I said to Sean, you know, I've, I've never... I don't know who Laura Nero is. And he said, you know, it's it's actually pretty good. It's surprisingly soulful. And th- I think this might have been the first one I checked out. So it's... So I, I think of it as my entry point for the music of Laura Nero. <laughs> to re- yeah, to, like you said, to realize this is all covers. And primarily, all of her other albums are almost 100% originals. Yeah. With a few exceptions.
0: Yeah, and it seemed... Maybe this is something you're going to kind of poke at later, but it seemed interesting to me that she was kind of better known for writing songs that other people made popular. It seemed like an interesting move to kind of flip on that and like stop writing her songs for her albums and just like covering a bunch of popular songs.
2: Yeah. This is the only time she did that.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, that in that song, The Bells was written by Marvin Gaye. His wife, Anna Gordy Gay, who was the elder sister of Motown founder, Barry Gordy. Their cousin, Iris Gordy. And LG Stover, cousin of key Motown developer, Harvey Fuqua, who we discussed a little bit on our Sylvester episode. And it had originally been recorded by the originals in 1970 and had been produced by Marvin Gaye. Sean, do you know that original, The Bells, by the originals?
1: Yeah, I think I've got the LP and 45. It's a cool song.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was not long before Marvin Gaye would have recorded what's going on.
1: Yeah. It was a transitional time over at Motown and, you know, music in general.
2: Yeah. So yeah, Laura Nero, as Jeremy said, primarily known as a writer of hit songs for other artists, including blood, sweat and tears, three dog night, Barbara Streisand, and several for the fifth dimension, like stone soul picnic and wedding bell blues to name just a couple so, Jeremy, you've kind of s- stated your background or what you understood Laura Nero to be <laughs> previously. Yeah. And I'm guessing you're not alone. I am I feel like some listeners may be surprised by the sound of that first song as well. Uh, Sean, I know that you have some experience with her work.
1: Yeah, and just a little bit. By the way, I, I love when you mention quotes from me because typically I do not remember myself saying these things. So eventually you're going to realize that you could just attribute whatever the hell you want to things I've said before, and I won't be able to challenge you on it. So, uh,
2: you're saying you don't remember an offhand comment you made to me in the record store 10 years ago.
1: <laughs> Shockingly. No. About so. one artist. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of probably discussing like 40 artists that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> for, for some reason I cataloged away in my brain. <laughs>
1: That's you know that's fine. I'm sure I remember things people have said that they forgot instantly. That's just, that's just how it works. But yeah, Laura Nero, this is one of those many artists that I've listened to. I have it filed in my brain that I like this artist and that they make good music, but I have never really dug into the story too much. And it's also one of those artists that I don't think I own any Laura Nero records. I know I like her, but I just see the albums everywhere and haven't actually put one in my collection yet.
2: Yeah, I had the same realization when she was one of the top picks for the opening of this season. Uh, oh, I like Laura Nero, but I always just listened to her in the store and never actually bought one and took it home and added it to my collection for whatever reason. Yeah, yep. But yeah, I'm glad that our listeners have chosen that it is time for us to discuss this artist. We've mentioned her many times. She she comes up fairly regularly on our Nona Hendrix episode when talking about LaBelle and Nona Hendrix's time in LaBelle, we mentioned this album and said we need to cover Laura Nero soon and that was a year and a half ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Yeah, Laura's kind of a dollar bin staple, you know? It's really easy to find this stuff and and this is a perfect example of kind of the artist and record that we wanted to talk about when we started this show.
2: Certainly. I'm going to just get a little bit into her bio now because we also want to at least touch base with LaBelle a little bit as well. So there's a lot to discuss here. So we'll start with Laura. She was born October 18th, 1947 in the Bronx, NYC. That's New York City. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Oh, yeah. Never know who's listening. The Big Apple? Yeah, the Big Apple. The uh, city
0: that never sleeps? <laughs> Concrete jungle?
2: The same. The same. Her father was a jazz trumpeter and piano tuner and her mother, a bookkeeper. She is of Russian Jewish, Polish Jewish and Italian American descent. She's also the niece of notable Polish painter and writer, Teresa Bernstein and her husband, Ukrainian painter, William Meyerowitz, both of whom encouraged her artistic development from a young age. She taught herself piano, listening to her mother's Nina Simone, Billie Holiday, and Debussy and Ravel records and started writing her own material by the age of eight.
1: Those are pretty intense artists to teach yourself how to play piano while listening to.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite the gumbo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She attended Manhattan's high school of music and art graduating in 1965, putting her in the same class as Michael Kamen. Do you guys remember when we last discussed Michael Kamen? No, I also do not. It was, he was in the New York rock and roll ensemble. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yep. While in high school, she performed with friends on street corners and in subway stations, inspired by the harmony groups. She had grown up seeing in those settings, she also became enamored with the power of songs that were socially conscious. Uh, Laura Nero was bisexual and was known to openly discuss the feminist themes in her work. And later in life, she would become an animal rights activist and vegetarian. But in 1966, at the age of 19, she came to the attention of a record company executive. This guy's name is hilarious to me. Artie Mogul. <laughs> <laughs> and... uh Became her manager, and she released her debut album, More Than a New Discovery. The following year, it contained several songs recorded by the aforementioned artists. That would, and it would, those would become hits for those artists. You know, we said the like the Fifth Dimension, Barbra Streisand, etc. The following summer, she appeared at the Monterey International Pop Festival, that marked the first major American appearances for artists like Jimi Hendrix, The Who, and Ravi Shankar and all of those artists wowed and astounded the crowd right at the dawn of the psychedelic era unfortunately 20-year-old Laura Nero's set of moody soulful tunes with Nero performing in a black gown was not well received and culminated in Nero being booed off stage at least that's according to popular myth what footage of yeah <laughs> footage of her set was not included in the film of the festival. So for decades, a couple negative reviews of her performance and Laura herself having perceived some negative response in the crowd perpetuated this myth. But in the 1990s, the filmmaker behind the Monterey pop festival movie, D.A. Pennebaker, he reviewed her raw footage and found that she was largely well-received and certainly wasn't booed. Off stage, her performance of her song Poverty Train, in fact, it can, that can be viewed online and it's spellbinding. Uh, someone in the audience can be heard saying beautiful. And thankfully, in more recent years, this song was included on the release Iconic Performances of Monterey International Pop Festival. So finally, the story is getting corrected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's something that kind of haunted her. And yeah, it's just she perceived that maybe a few boos in the crowd just made her think that that was how everyone felt. And she we will see as we go further. Yeah. She, she may have been more of a writer and someone who enjoyed the studio setting more than the live setting. Following the Monterey pop festival, our good buddy, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, I'd buy that for a dollar. Clive Davis signed her to Columbia and she released what is generally regarded as her most famous work, kind of her masterpiece, Eli and the 13th Confession, as hinted at in Jeremy Ruggles' intro to this episode. Busted. That, uh- <laughs> That album had a pretty profound impact on a lot of songwriters. I know Todd Rundgren actually said that that album is what made him stop trying to write like The Who and start writing like Laura Nero. And if you listen to that album, you can totally hear its influence on Todd Rundgren. But at this point, I think we should listen to another song. Which song? I was thinking Jimmy Mack. All right, Jimmy Mack. Let's bring him back. Side B, track two.
3: Jimmy, Jimmy, oh, Jimmy Mac, when are you coming back?
1: This record a lot and i really like laura nero's voice but i gotta say if labelle wasn't on here this record would be like half the record that it is they really just elevated this thing so much it's a very vocal forward album and just those harmonies and the way it's recorded are flawless
2: i can agree with that and i you know i i think laura would too <laughs> yeah if she were here to defend her album she would agree that it Wouldn't be the same without LaBelle. And we'll talk more about LaBelle in just a moment, but I did want to mention that that song, Jimmy Mack, was written by Motown creative team Holland Dozier Holland and had been a big hit for Martha and the Vandellas in 1967. On streaming, it's the most popular song from this album, likely due to its inclusion in the semi-recent popular Netflix miniseries, The Queen's Gambit. The oh the chess one the chess one yeah
0: i never watched that one
2: it was pretty good it was a good show yeah yeah, good show so yeah i can see why people would have then checked out the songs featured in it so yeah labelle at the time of this release the vocal trio labelle consisted of patty labelle nona hendrix and sarah dash and if you want to hear more about labelle I suggest checking out our Nona Hendricks album, <laughs> where Sean went into pretty great detail. We'll just do a little review here. They had formed in Philadelphia in the late 1950s as the Ordettes. Then they became the Bluebells, then Patti LaBelle and her Bluebells. And the group by this point had been slugging it out, performing to mostly black audiences across the United States For a decade, they had had minimal chart success. In fact, their 1962 hit, I Sold My Heart to the Junkman, that had been their only substantial hit on the pop charts, and it was credited to them, but it wasn't actually them on the recording. It was a Chicago group called the Starlets on the recording. It was a whole contractual thing. That happened a lot in those early days.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that happens much more than people realize, being just a totally different band and sometimes singers as well.
2: Yeah, I know that happened with the crystals. He's a rebel as well. I think it's Darling Love <laughs> on the song.
1: <laughs> mm.
3: And
2: in 1967, longtime member of the group Cindy Birdsong left to join The Supremes as a replacement for Florence Ballard. Of course, we, uh, we did uh, the Supreme's Floyd Joy way <laughs> album back. way back early on. Cindy Birdsong was on that album. So in 1970, the new manager of LaBelle, Vicky Wickham, sought to rebrand the group, which included getting away from the traditional girl group image and making more of a statement with their work, individualizing the members, as well as a name change, at which point they simply became LaBelle. And according to Patti LaBelle, it was a chance meeting between her and Laura Nero that sparked this collaboration album that we're listening to today, Gonna Take a Miracle. New manager of the group, Vicki Wickham, was a multifaceted behind-the-scenes figure in the music industry. She was the producer of the 1960s British TV music show, Ready, Steady, Go, as well as manager of Dusty Springfield. When Wickham went to interview Laura Nero for Melody Maker, that's when Patti LaBelle tagged along and Nero and LaBelle hit it off by sitting at a piano and singing R&B hits from their childhood together. And Laura at this point had already conceived of an album paying tribute to the New York styled street singing and early incarnations of doo-wop and soul that she had admired growing up. And she asked Patty LaBelle for LaBelle to be the background vocals on this project. And Nero likely also connected with the queer aspect of the group LaBelle with manager Vicky Wickham and LaBelle member Nona Hendricks in a long-term relationship to this day. Of course, Patty LaBelle would become a major ally and icon in the LGBTQ community.
1: <laughs> it also just makes, it makes perfect sense that if you're going to do a themed album paying tribute to this kind of vocal group sound, you might as well get one of those vocal groups that was making music during that time to get that extra authenticity to the project.
2: Exactly. Which, as you previously stated, I think that's why it sounds so damn authentic.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) I mean, yeah, Laura Nero is truly a soul vocalist, uh, but yeah, having LaBelle on it just takes it to the next level. I think that's what really makes it a standout covers album.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And th- there's just such a sense of joy to them doing this. You get this sense that there was a lot of fun to just make this music that they all loved and do it in a kind of simplistic, straightforward manner.
2: Sure, yeah. On the 2002 CD reissue of this album, Patty LaBelle said, I will always cherish my memories of making this album with Laura. We became best of friends, and she became my son's godmother. She was a true artist and an incredible spirit, and the song's What beautiful inspiration. Love that. This recording also features the legendary production team of Kenneth Gamble and Leon Huff, who this same year founded their label, Philadelphia International Records, which of course launched the Philly Soul Sound at the beginning of season three. We did several episodes focusing on Philadelphia International Records and Gamble and Huff.
0: Dang, it's a Philly John too
2: yeah and it doesn't stop there it's like this is like straight up low-key a Philly soul album of course it was recorded at Sigma Sound Studios in Philadelphia but the house band for that label MFSB are the backing band
0: that's not low-key this is a high-key Philadelphia
2: soul record but I'm saying it's in disguise it's not on that label Yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's a Laura Nero album (laughs) fair enough And two other key figures of that label, Tom Bell and Bobby Martin are the horn and string arrangement team on most of this album. I think we've, we talked about, I know we talked about Tom Tom Bell at length and I'm sure Bobby Martin came up on some of those early season three episodes where we focused on Philadelphia international records. So yeah, it straight up is a Philly soul album.
1: Yeah, you got a bunch of the key players on here. It's, yeah, the gang's all here on this record. And this is also, you know, shortly after the, the Philly Soul record with Dusty Springfield, Brand New Me.
2: Yeah, which, which is probably another one we'll, we'll cover oh, at some point. he
0: said it. He <laughs> said it out loud again.
1: <laughs> one of the records, one of the artists that was on our list. Oh, it's happening. Will then. be talked about eventually.
2: Well, let's go ahead, before we go any further, let's play another song. This is the only single released from the album, and it only reached 103 on the Billboard charts, but it was the first time that LaBelle, under the name LaBelle, charted. This is It's Gonna Take a Miracle, basically the title track. There is an it's added at the beginning. (laughs)
1: piano on this record by the way laura nero Uh, okay cool cool
2: that beautiful song was one of two tracks from this album featured on the soundtrack of the 2004 film at home at the end of the world apparently i haven't seen the film but apparently one of the plot points is a character being introduced to the music of laura nero Hmm. (laughs) which i didn't have the hour and a half two hours to invest in watching that as research so have you heard
0: this band they're gonna change your life yeah i know it's very much
2: (laughs) a shins garden state moment at least that's what it seems like i'll I'll have to watch the the film and find out that song it's gonna take a miracle was originally a hit for the Royalettes in 1965 but the most successful version would be recorded in 1982 jeremy can you guess who it was it's someone you you dig and you used to watch episodes of her youtube series as research for the show oh denise <laughs> yeah williams. denise williams yeah denise williams had a pretty big hit with it's gonna take a miracle in 1982
0: oh, i could see her killing that song
2: i always enjoyed the anecdotes you would share from her little <laughs> youtube series yeah
0: i gotta go back i haven't i haven't checked in on that in a minute
2: yeah following the release of this album Desiring to retreat from the limelight, Laura Nero announced her retirement from music, and she settled down in a small town in Massachusetts in 1972 after marrying Vietnam veteran and carpenter, David Biancini.
0: You should mention she's 24. Yes, (laughs) she's retiring. Yeah, she's
2: retiring from music at 24.
0: (laughs) After her fifth album? Sixth album?
2: This was her fifth album. Yeah. 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 If only, right? Can you imagine... You know, your your brain's just fully developing and you're deciding it's time to retire from music. <laughs> Settle down. Live out the rest of your days in Massachusetts. Yeah. The place the Bee Gees sing about. In nineteen seventy five, her marriage ended, and her mother died of ovarian cancer, and to console herself to get through that hard time, Laura wrote and recorded her first album in four years, Smile, released in nineteen seventy six. Not to be confused with Brian Wilson and the beach boys and all that. She began performing and touring again as well. Much of her work over the next 15 or so years would often be tied to the women's music subculture. And a lot of it brought attention to causes like animal rights and even the unjust relocation of indigenous peoples on July 4th, 1991. She opened for Bob Dylan at the Tanglewood music center in Lenox, Massachusetts. And that was a, big appearance for her but she turned down a lot of major television appearances including the tonight show the late show with david letterman and even saturday night live due to her discomfort appearing on tv i do get a very introverted vibe from her
0: yeah i get the impression that yeah fame or like big crowd type appearances were not her thing
2: yeah and as evidenced by a few naysayers at monterey just totally let, ruining that event for her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In late 1996, Laura, like her mother, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and would pass away the following year at the age of 49, the same age that her mother had died. Just before passing, though, Laura oversaw the release on Columbia of a double disc career retrospective of her work called Stone Soul Picnic, the best of Laura Nero. The label wanted to do a single disc, but this would have only focused on her early career. And Laura was adamant that it be a full career overview. And she lived just long enough to see its release. And it's worth mentioning. Yeah. So she kind of took the reins there and everyone involved in the making of this album said that, yeah, while Gamble and Huff where the production team Laura was fully in control of this project yet it was a fun experience it wasn't like a dictator or something like that so i get the impression that she's it seems that people who worked with her look back on her fondly their time spent working with her you know her and patty labelle developed a lifelong friendship out of this collaboration
0: yeah and she inspired a lot of people from from what i saw
2: yeah, you know, we mentioned Todd Rundgren, but her songwriting influence was vast. People like Ricky Lee Jones, Suzanne Vega, and Elton John. Elton John was like a huge fan of Laura Nero.
0: Oh, I can see that.
2: <laughs> of course, LaBelle would reach their commercial peak just a few years after Gonna Take a Miracle with the song Lady Marmalade off their 1974 album Nightbirds. They wouldn't last much longer than that, though. And by 1976, members went their separate ways. You can once again, our Nona Hendricks episode will give you in great detail what she went off and did after that. And I'm, I'm guessing, uh, we'll probably yet shine our spotlight on Patty LaBelle at some point.
1: <laughs> did you mark that, yeah, Sean? Definitely worth doing. Yeah. Okay. Noted. Spreadsheet has been updated.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely worth doing. LaBelle did reunite briefly in the late two thousands at some point. They did put out one more album at that point. But yeah, we'll more details to come on Labelle yet. (laughs) And I'd buy that for a dollar. All
1: other artists (laughs) (laughs) will never stop doing this podcast.
2: Well Sean, did you happen to include any Labelle on your list of recommended similar albums for this episode?
1: I didn't, you know, I thought about it, but I figured they would get shouted out enough that i didn't necessarily need to put them in there but I, there's not really a bad label record and that first one from 71 self-titled labelle if you can find it that one's a little pricier but man is it a killer record and a good pairing with this one you can see both sides of the newly reinvented label.
2: they record a laura nero song on there oh
1: nice but my official three records I picked out for, say, the first one, Carole King, Rap Around Joy from 1974. <laughs> yeah. Previously featured a great example of that kind of soul, pop, and folk crossover sound. And Carole King, obviously someone who wrote many, many hits for other people.
2: Yeah. that Carole King definitely came to mind a few times when researching and preparing for this episode. I realized that this would have been released, Gonna Take a Miracle came out the same year as Tapestry. Oh, uh, yeah. 1971. But yeah, Wraparound Around Joy is a great album, too, and doesn't nearly get the attention that Tapestry does, so listen to our episode with Taylor Rowley on that one.
1: hmm And then next one leans a little more into the kind of folk singer-songwriter rootsy style, but I really like Maria Moldauer's self-titled record from 1973. That's the one with the hit Midnight at the Oasis. And uh, pretty good pairing with Laura Nero I say
2: yeah that is such a great album I've been listening to it again ever since I picked up a copy when the three of us went out digging right at the tail end of last season and I and I was familiar with it already but it had been a while since I had heard it and yeah what a fantastic folk record but it's so much more than that
1: indeed And uh, last one, record that I already mentioned, but Dusty Springfield's Brand New Me from 1970, a record that we have recommended many times. And, you know, I would recommend something different, but it's just such a perfect comparison to this. You got the Philly soul thing going on. You have an artist pushing more into soul music than people might have associated them with previously. Great record, still cheap. Got to talk about it eventually.
2: Yeah, Dusty was on our survey of artists to feature at the beginning of this season and I was surprised. I thought she would be one of the top picks but Laura yeah, Nero maybe
1: the biggest upset I don't know they they're all good artists though that's the problem is we just have this huge list of incredible artists that all are very very deserving of their own episode but we can only do about 50 episodes a season you know yeah i'm
0: just going to say our audience might want to check in on the ink spots <laughs>
1: Ever heard of them? <laughs> They're heard pretty of them? good. Yeah,
2: That's another one I expected for some reason to be a top contender <laughs> and it wasn't but it sounds like I'm getting the impression Jeremy's going to go for it. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely if you do want of course this album I would highly recommend Going to Take a Miracle. That's why I ultimately picked this one but yes it isn't necessarily the best so- showcase for Laura as a songwriter, because none of her songs are on it, but just about any other record of hers is going to be all Laura. And Eli and the 13th Confession is a wonderful, fantastic. I'd say that's a masterpiece. So, also worth checking out. I was back and forth between that one and this one, but I stand by it. I have to at this point. We're (laughs) we're at the end of the episode. (laughs) 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 I uh, jumped ahead to the quote from patty labelle that i was going to save for the end so i'm out of uh final thoughts if unless you guys have any i'll
0: throw out there that i did stumble on that they're making a laura nero documentary apparently
2: yeah which is overdue there's really not a comprehensive documentary on her And I saw a little bit about that, too, and I got so busy researching for this episode that I didn't look further into it. But is that something that's, like, underway?
0: Yeah, it said they were beginning work in 2022, so keep your eyes peeled. I don't know much more than that, but yeah, They better not be crossing
1: that picket line, though, I tell you what. Oh, true.
2: Well, I was going to go out in a way to just totally flip things On their head with the opening song, which is a cover of the Shirelles. I met him on a Sunday, which is really just this is a great start to the record. It's a great way to go out on this episode. (laughs) The harmonies are on point
1: on point as expected. (laughs) Well,
0: I look forward to doing this for another year and apparently forever, according to Sean with you fellas yeah, i see so.
1: no reason to stop
0: <laughs> maybe death but or beyond or beyond maybe we'll get cosmic
2: with it could happen weirder things have happened <laughs> <laughs> okay well thank you for listening to this episode of i buy that for a dollar on laura nero and labelle my name is peter cook
1: my name is jeremy ruggles and i'm sean hartman
3: Well, I met him on a Sunday, Ooh.